As I record this intro, it's Monday, the 16th of March, 2020. If you're listening to this far in the future, then what you need to know is the headlines are all coronavirus. So we, too, here at Science for the People, are taking a long, hard look at the viral elephant in the room. Because it's on our minds like it's on yours, and it seems disingenuous to avoid it. Because when I personally am feeling a bit nervous about something, I tend to redirect that anxiety by learning what I can about it, beyond the same five or six headlines that I keep seeing. And talking to a couple of people much, much smarter than me in order to put it out on this little podcast feels like something practical and useful. It's okay if this isn't what you want to listen to. If you're already up to your eyeballs in coronavirus and just need something else to think about, then give this one a pass. It's okay. Gastropod has a great episode out about licorice right now. If science fiction pop culture is your thing, check out Our Opinions Are Correct. There's also the Number File podcast, an ongoing series of long-format interviews with mathematicians. If you want some medical humor, Sawbones has a whole episode on bidets. I've been listening to a lot of Dungeons & Dragons Real Play podcasts, which has nothing to do with science and a lot to do with hilarious and nerdy people enjoying each other's company. Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Rochelle Saunders. If you, like me, are looking for something beyond the headlines right now, then maybe today's episode will help you like it helped me. First up is my discussion recorded Sunday the 15th of March with Dr. Jason Kindrachuk. He's an assistant professor in the Department of Medical Microbiology and Infectious Diseases at the University of Manitoba, and he holds a Tier 2 Canada Research Chair in the Molecular Pathogenesis of Emerging Viruses and Pandemic Outbreak Preparedness in both developing and developed nations. His research program focuses on the investigation of emerging virus circulation, transmission, and pathogenesis. In particular, he studies those viruses that pose the greatest threat to global human and animal health. Findings from his investigations will help inform emerging virus therapeutic treatment strategies, outbreak prediction and preparedness efforts with impacts on both human and animal health. As you can imagine, an expert like Jason is in high demand right now, and he kindly made time in his Sunday to talk with me about the virus itself, what it is, as well as what we know and don't know about it. Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Rochelle Saunders. With me is Dr. Jason Kindrachuk. He's an assistant professor in the Department of Medical Microbiology and Infectious Diseases at the University of Manitoba and holds a Tier 2 Canada Research Chair in the Molecular Pathogenesis of Emerging and Reemerging Viruses. He has broad expertise and interests in emerging viruses and pandemic outbreak preparedness in both developing and developed nations. His research program focuses on investigation of emerging virus circulation, transmission, and pathogenesis. In particular, his work focuses on those viruses that pose the greatest threat to global human and animal health. Findings from his investigations will help inform emerging virus therapeutics treatment strategies, outbreak prediction and preparedness efforts with impacts on both human and animal health. Jason, welcome to Science for the People. 
Bird. Thank you so much for having me, Rochelle. So can you give us the uh, quick rundown on what the coronavirus is and how it relates to some of the other viruses we've seen before or know of already? Yeah, it's, um, you know, I think obviously everybody is, is quite interested and intrigued to, uh, to understand, you know, where this thing kind of came from. Um, what, what I can say right up front is uh, SARS-CoV-2, which is uh, Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome Coronavirus 2, uh, which is distinct from uh, the original SARS coronavirus. Um, obviously, we, we heard about this, you know, starting, uh, you know, first week of January and now has uh, eventually turned into a pandemic. So th- this virus uh, is what is the underlying cause of uh, coronavirus disease 2019 or COVID-19. Um, the best way to talk about coronaviruses and where this thing came from is that, you know, prior to 2002, coronaviruses really weren't something that, that we were very concerned about. They had been circulating in the human population uh, from probably the 1960s onwards. Um, there had been uh, four coronaviruses that had been identified up to that point. Um, all of which primarily caused, uh, you know, cold-like symptoms in, in people that got infected. Uh, though we did see, you know, severe disease in, in people that were immunocompromised or, or uh, very young children or the elderly. Um, but, but those cases were very, very few and far between. So coronaviruses really weren't uh, a big research interest or, or public health interest. And then uh, 2002 rolled around and SARS coronavirus. Um, you know, suddenly emerged in, in China and then made its way, you know, across the globe. Um, what was interesting about SARS coronavirus is that, uh, you know, it, it was the first time that we saw a coronavirus that had, uh, you know, pandemic potential. Um, it, it, you know, caused a, a fairly large epidemic. We, we saw it spreading rapidly, um, but through basic containment procedures and mitigation procedures. So basically, you know, trying to clamp down on, on transmission from human to human, um, what we were able to do was essentially extinguish that virus. So it, by 2004, it disappeared from the human population, and we haven't seen it, it reemerge since then. Uh, and then things went quiet for, for a long period of time. And then uh, later in the 2000s, uh, we had Middle East Respiratory Syndrome Coronavirus, uh, which spilled over initially in, in the Middle East and, and uh, you know, then spread uh, somewhat across the globe, uh, including uh, outbreaks in South Korea, but has primarily stayed within uh, within the Middle East. Um, that virus again, when it when it emerged, um, you know, we, we saw a fairly high case fatality rate. So, you know, about four out of ten people that that got infected and still do get infected with MERS uh, will will actually have fatal infections. Um, we, uh, you know, it, it gave us as far as the research community and and I think for people in public health. Maybe again, another wake up call that coronaviruses were, were something that, that we actually needed to take quite seriously. And, and that was enough so that, that the WHO had actually designated coronaviruses as being, um, you know, one of, one of their perceived global public health threats. Um, you know, and lo and behold, December 31st, 2019, we, you know, there's a few of us, um, who I think have, you know, young children at home and, and very tired partners, um, you know, who were on, uh, Twitter that night. And saw updates from, uh, from ProMed and from a few news agencies talking about this weird kind of atypical pneumonia that presented in Wuhan, China, and that was described as being somewhat SARS-like, but, you know, didn't quite maybe fit the, the specific description of SARS and has since emerged into, uh, into a pandemic. So, you know, for, for coronaviruses, they, they were, there were a family of viruses that were largely forgotten about and dismissed for years. 
um, even with uh, with warning signs from SARS and MERS, and that has uh, you know essentially uh, taken us to where we are today. So, what makes the coronavirus family distinct when we're thinking about the uh, COVID nineteen that we have now, but also the SARS and MERS viruses that we've seen previously? Yeah, you know what? In terms of what makes them distinct, I mean, they're they're still they're respiratory viruses, right? So. If you look at, um, you know, say, uh, influenza or RSV or, or coronaviruses, there, there are a lot of things that are shared in similarity to one another. I think with the coronas, um, you know, what, what maybe makes them a little bit distinct, uh, is trying to identify where they're spilling over from. So, you know, what, what we've seen, at least with, uh, you know, with SARS coronavirus, MERS coronavirus, um, and, uh, and now, uh, uh SARS CoV-2, is we think that they uh, that they have spilled over from from largely from bats. So when we look back at some of the uh, the, the genome sequences uh, for for these particular viruses, and as well um, you know a little bit on um, you know some of the I guess epidemiology uh, and uh, ecological investigations for these viruses, there's there's some indication that that's where they're spilling over from, which is a little bit distinct, obviously, from things like influenza, where you know we tend to think of uh, you know a, you know a number of other animals, uh, primarily pigs and uh, and uh, fowl, um, and you know and obviously uh, avian species for uh, uh, for where those viruses come from. So I think you know the the largest thing is the fact that you know we think that they come over from bats. Um, but they also, you know, game they they were primarily thought of as being these, you know, I don't want to say wimpy viruses, but uh, as being these, you know, kind of just basically kind of cold viruses for for years. And out of nowhere, you know, the the really the last three that have spilled over have been ones that that we very seriously had to think um, about as as being potential, uh, you know, pandemic threats or at the very least global public health threats. And what about compared to influenza? Obviously, the flu is something yeah. that circulates on an annual basis. Everybody's had the flu. Um, and I'm also thinking as well of something like the H1N1 uh, that yes. came around oh, it was a number of years ago now. And I remember it mostly. Yeah, 2009. I remember it mostly because I caught it and it was really <laughs> not fun. Nasty. Yep. Um, so, you know, what, what's interesting with uh, with these coronas, um, if we compare it back to influenza, so, you know, influenza, obviously, uh, from year to year, what we see is the ability of, uh, of different influenza strains, uh, to both, you know, kind of mix and, and recombine as well as to, uh, to mutate. So, you know, what that creates is basically a, a massive issue for us, um, to try and figure out from year to year, you know, what, what precise influenza strain is, is circulating, uh, in, you know, in, in basically infecting the human population and causing disease. Um, and do we have vaccines that, that will identify that? So influenza, you know, as somebody who has worked uh, quite a bit on influenza in, in the lab, um, influenza remains a, a beast for us. Uh, you know, it, seasonal influenza virus, um, you know, so right now we have H1N1 still circulating, uh, and H3N2 viruses that, uh, for influenza A viruses that are still circulating. You know, those, those viruses on an annual basis kill about 500,000 people per year globally. Um, yet we're, we're very dismissive of them. We have a vaccine that has, you know, obviously, you know, um, some problems with, uh, with overall protection from year to year because of these properties of flu. Uh, but it, you know, it is something that has largely, I think, become kind of forgotten and almost passe. Um, coronas are a little bit different. You know, we, we don't see a lot of mutation in coronas. Um, 
And, uh, you know, with, with MERS, uh, you know, it's, it's circulating. We know it continues to, to circulate in the background. Um, it hasn't quite gained the ability to get sustained human to human transmission. So most of the transmission, uh, we think is largely, uh, probably from, um, actually from camels. Uh, to, to humans or from human to human, uh, within healthcare settings. So, you know, particularly patients that, that come down with illness and, and, uh, you know, are, are getting treated. Um, you know, for, for SARS, it was a little bit different. Like it, it came and just disappeared. And, and that's what I think was so mystifying about that virus was that, you know, had it killed about, you know, nine to 10% of the people infected, it caused severe acute respiratory, uh, syndrome or acute respiratory distress syndrome. Um, you know, in a lot of patients that it infected. Um, but it, it largely just disappeared. Uh, you know, and I think that was a thing was that it's, you know, we, we've taken coronaviruses seriously for a long period of time, but I think there was maybe a little bit of question, um, within, uh, you know, the global health community as a whole as to whether or not we would actually see this as a true pandemic threat, even though, you know, WHO had talked about, uh, you know, about the potential global threat of this and, and obviously coronavirus researchers, uh, and experts have been saying that, that, you know, these were viruses for us to watch for. I think everybody still thought, you know, flu is probably going to be the one that, you know, that, that we really need to be prepared, be kind of be prepared for. And even, you know, with this, with, with SARS-CoV-2, um, uh, in the early part of January, as we were watching cases spike up in, in China, you know, I think there was still, uh, not necessarily hesitation, but I think maybe, uh, you know, the community was caught off guard by the fact that this just, it didn't seem to fit maybe what we thought of coronaviruses. So, you know, there, there are distinct differences. Um, the other thing that I, I will add in, and I think, you know, probably we'll, we'll talk about or chat about it, um, throughout, uh, throughout this conversation is the fact that for influenza, when we get, you know, when people come down with severe illness, um, at the very least, what we know is we have a couple of therapeutic options. Uh, for patients, um, you know, there, there's some debate about, uh, the efficacy of those therapeutics and obviously the, uh, some question about the, the actual window for timing for when you could administer those to patients that, that are severely ill. But it at least provides us with an option. And we also know that, that obviously there's a vaccine that, uh, that is offered annually. With coronaviruses, we don't have anything. And that's where I think the big issue lies is that when we see something like this emerging, um, we essentially are now back down to social distancing, hygiene, and supportive care procedures in hospitals. And that makes it extremely difficult when we see something that, uh, you know, that, that has this ability to, uh, to, to spread globally and, and transmit from human to human fairly readily. So I, I kind of want to break down a little bit more about what we know and don't know about this virus. And as I was, as I was thinking about how to start talking about this, the best sure. thing I could think of was like calling out kind of the virus baseball card stats. Um, <laughs> if that makes sense, yep. if I were to create sort of like a baseball card of what this virus can do, uh, better or worse than other viruses, I was sort of thinking yeah. that that might be baseball card like. So can we maybe start by talking about the, ease at which it's spreading because that's definitely a big one yeah so you know that and that's been something that uh that there's been a lot of question about obviously with with respiratory viruses um you know i to give you some context for my background i mean i uh i i do still research uh ebola and i i love ebola as a as a virus uh, it's what got me into research 
um, spent time in West Africa during the uh, the West African epidemic and still spent a lot of time there. Um, you know, it, it, what's oh, I guess the best way for me to put it is I I love a lot of viruses to work on, but they don't scare me. Um, respiratory viruses make me very nervous. Um, and this one in particular, because of the fact that the transmission uh, is so difficult for us to, to try and, and contain. So when we think about, you know, kind of the, you know, the, the baseball stats of, uh, of SARS-CoV-2, what we know so far is that uh, we think that the, you know, largely the, the transmission from person to person is primarily based on what we call respiratory droplets. So what that means is that the virus is, uh, is essentially is excreted from uh, the respiratory tract of the lungs of people that are infected, um, essentially by, uh, by mucus and, and fluid that essentially is expelled when we sneeze or when we cough. Now, what's different from kind of a more traditional, you know, aerosol virus, uh, you know, so if we think about something like measles that can last, you know, in, uh, you know, in the environment for a long period of time and, and, you know, even influenza to a certain extent. Um, with this coronavirus, what we think is that it, it, it's not a true aerosol virus. So it can basically be transmitted up to a certain distance, uh, as long as it's attached to, uh, you know, to, to respiratory droplets. And we think right now, our best estimation at least is, uh, that that distance is probably about six feet. Um, so it's kind of a, I would say it is gross, but I guess from a science perspective, it's interesting. Um, you know, when we cough or sneeze, uh, obviously, you know, we fluid, it leaves our lungs and leaves our respiratory tract. Uh, the droplets that, uh, that are actually infective can travel about six feet. So if somebody is, uh, in close proximity to you and you happen to cough or sneeze, um, in particular towards, uh, towards their face, they have obviously a, you know, an increased probability of essentially breathing in or, or capturing, uh, those droplets, um, either, uh, you know, in their, you know, across their mucosal membrane. So in their, in their mouth or, uh, you know, inhaling them through their nose or obviously through, through the eyes as well. Um, you know, so what we know is that, uh, that both helps and hinders us because the fact is we, we know that this virus, just by increasing the distance between people, um, that will actually help us, uh, it, unbelievably with, with stopping transmission. But it also is being transmitted by respiratory droplets, which means things become a lot more difficult in terms of containment. Um, when we think about things like, uh, again, like Ebola, um, that's primarily transmitted directly through, through contact. So, you know, if somebody, uh, has a, a cut on their hands and they, you know, basically, uh, are exposed to biological fluids or, or somebody else that, that is infected, um, you can get transmission events through there. Or if, you know, again, from a, um, <laughs> maybe a somewhat disturbing, uh, context, we, we know that Ebola patients will, uh, excrete, um, high amounts of fluid, uh, during peak illness, primarily through diarrhea and through vomiting. So if you're a healthcare worker and you happen to be around that person at that time, um, you can actually get infected if the droplets, uh, you know, suddenly make their way in, into your mouth or, uh, you know, into your eyes. But it's a very short distance. Um, so we can control those situations, very, you know, quite easily, um, to, uh, to try and stop the, the transmission. Uh, with, with SARS-CoV-2, it's become a lot more difficult. And what we now think is that, um, we think that the, uh, you know, what we call the R-naught, 
value or essentially um, the number of people that can be infected by uh, by a single patient. We think it's somewhere in the network. I think of two to three is what most of the estimations are, which means that that person can infect um, you know somewhere in the neighborhood of two to three people directly around them. Um, so all of these things, you know, whereas Ebola, it's about one. Uh, so that makes things again more complicated because when we have transmission that's occurring, uh, it, it becomes so difficult for us to actually contain this unless we get people uh, separated uh, apart from one another. What do we know about when the coronavirus is contagious? Because there's been some, I think, fairly recent news stories saying that it may be contagious before symptoms develop. Yeah. So this is this is something that's gone back and forth a little bit. I, I think in um, you know in, in the the literature that's been presented so far. And you know, what, what I'll kind of preface this with is this is the first pandemic and I think larger epidemic um, where I think we've had not only the, uh, you know, the general public um, actively use, using social media uh, to, to rapidly gain information, but we've had probably the majority of the scientific community doing this as well, um, which has allowed us to basically get uh, information um, you know, back and, uh, back and forth quite quickly. There, there was some initial data that had come out, uh, that suggested, uh, that patients that were asymptomatic or had subclinical infections may actually be able to transmit the virus. Um, and, and there was actually a, you know, a, a fairly, uh, you know, high impact or a, a paper that came out in a fairly high impact factor journal that, uh, discussed um, uh, a Chinese businesswoman that had uh, potentially transmitted virus while she was asymptomatic uh, in Germany. Um, and, and that kind of set off, I think, some alarm bells as far as what, you know, what role does asymptomatic transmission have in this? So what, what we know so far is that um, through a lot of the data that's come out from China is that patients that, uh, you know, that eventually, uh, become symptomatic, uh, when they've been in, so obviously they've taken people in that, uh, that were close contacts of, of people that were sick and they've been monitoring and testing those patients to see if they've developed disease. What they found in some of those patients was that they actually had, uh, signals for virus or, um, uh, or infectious virus within, uh, the respiratory tract prior to developing symptoms. And the question is how long uh, you know, how long before symptoms fully develop? Uh, is the virus there? Uh, how infectious is it? Um, and what is the uh, potential transmissibility of that? And, and I think those are questions we're still trying to answer. So we, we know that, um, you know, with influenza, that, you know, basically people have the potential ability to transmit virus, um, you know, up to even a few days prior to being symptomatic. Because the virus is uh, is act- actively being uh, uh, replicated, or or new copies are being made uh, within the respiratory tract, but the transmission is somewhat inefficient, right? So, and if we think about this from, you know, uh, the perspective of how the virus is primarily is transmitted, which is primarily through coughing and sneezing, if you're asymptomatic, you know, you're you're likely not coughing and sneezing that much or that much more than normal. So your ability to actually transmit virus now gets quite muted. So you have the potential that if you maybe if you do cough or sneeze uh, just randomly that that you might actually have some virus that that actually leaves or or gets expelled. Um, but you also have the potential through direct close contact um, to uh, to potentially be able to transmit virus. 
The thing we don't understand, though, is even though we have you know, all these potentials that add up to the possibility of asymptomatic transmission, um, we don't have a lot of clear data right now to, to say directly, yes, this absolutely happens. Um, the other thing that, that I would also uh, mention with this is even though we know with, with other viruses, uh, you know, just like I mentioned with, with influenza, that there is the potential for, uh, for asymptomatic transmission, we don't think that these events happen uh, very efficiently at all. So what that means essentially is that the likelihood is um, those events are likely not driving any of the uh, um, any of the uh, you know transmission chains that we're seeing. So they're they're very you know they may happen. They may be uh, occurring in very isolated cases, but they're absolutely not driving. Uh, the primary uh, community uh, transmission that, that we're seeing with this virus. So primary transmission would be um, basically being driven off people who are sick, doing a lot of coughing and uh, spreading that around uh, the people within close contact with them or if you, they happen to be in large groups. You've got it. And, and, that's, and that's why, you know, you, you were hearing such heavy handed comments, um, you know, across the board on this idea of, of social distancing and, and uh, hygiene. Is purely for the fact that that what is driving this virus is uh, you know is close contact, and, and I think some of the data started to suggest that, right? So if you look back, uh, you know there there will be great debates for long periods of time by people that are far smarter than me um, about whether or not the quarantine measures that that were undertaken in China um, not only were effective but also uh, ethical. Um, so I, you know, I don't want to provide any, uh, any necessary comment on that. But what I will say is that, you know, what we did see is a pretty precipitous decrease in the amount of transmission once those quarantines were taking place. So I think what that all suggests is that if you get people separated and if you actually, uh, institute, um, uh, you know, social distancing as well as possible and, and as early as possible, you could effectively reduce the amount of transmission that occurs for this virus. So I want to also talk about what this virus does and how dangerous it is um, and kind of what the effect of it is on the body once someone's sure. actually got it. So can you talk a little bit about what a mild case looks like? Because we've heard a lot of talk about many cases are mild to moderate, and then you get some that uh, become very severe. Yeah, no, absolutely. So you know, again, I, I will preface this by saying, you know, we're what we're, uh, you know, I think 12 weeks now into, uh, you know, into this pandemic uh, from, from when the virus first emerged um, or, or when at least it was first reported. Um, we're, we're still learning a lot. Uh, you know, so a lot of the data that we have or, you know, in particular to, uh, you know, to describe clinical symptoms um, has actually been based off of a lot of the initial cohort data that came out of China. So, you know, basically a lot of the initial presentation of, of disease symptoms from patients there. So, you know, I, I do want to give credence to the fact that Chinese researchers and physicians provided a lot of data very quickly to, uh, to the research community that, that has helped us kind of identify what this, what this is and what it looks like. So what we know so far is that about 80% of patients that get infected with this virus will have Mild symptoms or largely mild symptoms. Um, and in some cases, those may be moderate or they may also be asymptomatic. And what that all means when we talk about it is that essentially they, they're mild influenza-like symptoms. 
Um, so in a lot of cases, when we talk about diseases and we talk about uh, particularly different uh, different viruses that emerge and what type of illness they cause, we often will refer back to uh, to, to presentations um, that that are similar or dissimilar to, to influenza. So you know what we tend to see is things like mild fever, um, you know, uh, some coughing. Um, we tend to see uh, you know a little bit of uh, of fatigue. Uh, in, you know, in those patients, um, in some cases, you know, the initial data that came out of China had suggested that, uh, predominantly we're seeing dry cough, although I think that has been somewhat debated now based on some of the data we're getting out of other regions. Uh, runny nose, um, seemed to, to be something that was not common, uh, for, uh, for COVID-19. So it, essentially it looks, you know, predominantly like a mild cold. In the vast majority of patients that that get infected, the problem is is it's not those eighty percent of patients um, that that we have that we have a lot of problems with because they ultimately will uh, you know will, will self resolve um, you know over time. It's the twenty percent of patients that get uh, essentially severe fatal disease, um, and we're learning more and more what that actually looks like. So. What what we think with severe patients is that uh, predominantly we see uh, you know a, a basically a high uh, a high burden uh, in terms of uh, uh, you know respiratory abnormalities so things like acute respiratory uh, distress syndrome where essentially we we see very labored breathing uh, in patients and uh, in a lot of cases those patients. Um, will end up having to be mechanically ventilated because they'll lose their ability to uh, to actually um, you know take on enough oxygen and and, and essentially uh, see a, a massive decrease in their overall lung function. So those patients uh, will will obviously end up uh, within the the intensive care unit, um, which creates a massive issue for us, right? Because we have we have you know eighty percent of patients that you know get basically you know a very very mild flu. Or kind of a mild cold, and then you have 20% of patients that get severe illness. Um, we don't tend to see a lot of kind of moderation in between that. Like it seems like there's kind of two very distinct phases, and a lot of this is based on age. So what what we tend to see, and I was actually just looking at some data that that had come out from Italy uh, the, uh, the the last few days, um, is what we see is kind of a you know up to the age of uh, basically of 50. We tend to see really no kind of overt signs of severe uh, or fatal disease. So, you know, basically infants on through, uh, you know, people in, in my age group and, and a little bit older um, will actually look like they have very mild disease. It's all self-resolving. Um, you know, they, they have very mild symptoms. They may not even notice them and they're fine. Once you get above the age of 50, now what you see is kind of a steady increase uh, in the overall uh, case fatality rate, or the number of people that 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 will die from this disease, um, and what we tend to see is that basically from 50 up through 60, 70, and 80, is that it's it's a pretty precipitous increase. Um, and primarily with uh, the Italian data, uh, people that were over the age of 80, I think it was around 16 or 17 percent case fatality rate, and then I think people that were over 90 it was uh, right around 25 percent. Uh, and what that means is that basically, you know, 16% and, and or 25% of those patients in those age groups that get infected will die. That, that doesn't even talk just about severe disease. 
Um, and those patients will be the ones that will, you know, basically see, um, you know, things like I said, acute respiratory distress syndrome, decreased lung function, uh, hypoxemia, um, you know, kind of all of the, you know, kind of worst of the worst for, uh, for respiratory diseases. So it sounds like older people are definitely at the greatest risk here. I've also heard um, that young children seem to either not be getting this disease or if they're getting it, it's not affecting them very badly. And in particular, um, young children seem to to not be impacted very much. Yeah. And this is where it, um, it's somewhat boggling because when we look at, you know, when we look at things like influenza, um, influenza very classically uh, hits, you know, it hits. Uh, elderly and, and seniors really hard, as well as those that have uh, you know some underlying health complications. Um, but it also hits infants really hard. Um, what we don't tend to see with this virus at all is infants showing infants or toddlers um, or young children showing uh, you know really you know either moderate or severe signs of disease. They predominantly show mild, uh, if any, symptoms at all, um, which complicates things a lot for us. Because when we start to think about, uh, you know, what that means, some of the data right now suggests that, uh, in, in basically infants and, and young children, um, there are, uh, obviously signs that they, that they are infected. So if, you know, if those patients have been tested, if they've had a, you know, a throat swab do- uh, done or a sputum sample taken and people have looked to see if virus is there, it looks like they have virus. The problem that we run into is we don't know. Be, watch, I'll back that up for a second. The problem is that even if we know that there's virus there, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's being transmitted. Mm-hmm. So it it suggests that it it could possibly play a role in transmission, um, but we don't definitively know. And that's where it creates an issue for us. Is we think you know kids you know do very well with this virus, but we don't know what role they play in transmission. And that now creates an issue for us because how, you know, how do we control for that in terms of uh, things like public health? I mean, I'm, listen, I'm, I'm a simple virologist. Uh, you know, I, I'm not, uh, I'm, I'm not a public health uh, person. And, and uh, there are people, again, that are, are far smarter than me that, that are experts in public health. But I think we're all concerned about the question of what do you do with kids? Because they do very well. Um, they, they don't seem to get severe disease. Does, you know, so that would suggest that maybe that they're actually, you know, quite fine and that they're, you know, going to, uh, going to be okay through this pandemic. But we don't know what role they play in transmission, which now, you know, begs the question of what do we do with these kids? Um, because how, you know, how do we limit, uh, their ability to, uh, to potentially spread the virus? Uh, when we don't actually know for sure that they do spread the virus or, or to what extent they spread it. So I think there, there have been so many new variables and wrinkles that have come out with this virus, uh, that, that have, you know, really challenged how we, uh, we kind of view, um, the idea of trying to control, uh, you know, outbreaks and, and now, uh, uh, you know, pandemics. Um, I think it's really going to, you know, cause us to maybe take a, a second look at, at preparedness strategies over the long term, um, for, for this type of eventuality. Cause I just don't think maybe a lot of people appreciated the fact that, that this could happen. I think we all assumed, you know, the kids and seniors would be the ones that would be most affected. Um, and, uh, you know, and those would be the, the things we would have to focus on. And that's not necessarily the case here. 
Yeah, from a public health perspective, uh, I can tell that one of the things that's making this the most difficult for people at that level is trying to figure out whether or not to close schools because closing yeah. schools just creates a domino effect of other impacts because you can't just close schools and have kids go, all right, I'll just sit at home. You need a, a parent or a caregiver if that child is under the age of 12 or 13. And of course, then you have knock-on effects of those parents who work and may not be able to be home with their kids. And I know here in the UK, there's some concern that uh, by closing schools, you end up with a lot of grandparents who are the most vulnerable than caring for the children so that their parents can keep working. So I can see that it causes a whole bunch of problems around making decisions that seem on the surface to be kind of no-brain decisions. But once you start to try and pick them apart, they're really complex. I agree. So we, you know, I, I'm one of two Dr. Kitterchucks in this household who, uh, you know, who happen to have backgrounds in microbiology and, and, and we, and we have a 17 month old toddler and, and we've talked about what do we do? Um, you know, we, uh, we're very fortunate that in the city we live in, uh, we have, uh, my, uh, my partner's parents. So, uh, you know, both of, uh, my wife's parents are, are still here, but they're both in, in their eighties. Um, what, do we do? Because now we have to start to consider the fact that, you know, our 17 month old may not show signs of, you know, of, of the illness if she's infected. Um, do we, you know, how long do we stay away from her senior grandparents? Uh, you know, what, what do we do, uh, even as, as two working professionals, if her daycare closes and the likelihood is that it will close soon? What, what do we do with that? Do we, you know, do we both work from home? Do we shift work? Um, you know, that all these things are, are adding so many nuances and I don't know as if there's a perfect answer for it. I've, I've gone back and forth the last 24 hours and in trying to understand what I think is best. And, and when, you know, even when friends of mine have asked me for my suggestions, I, I don't know. This is, this is a very, very different virus from, I think, anything we've dealt with before. And I think part of the problem is, is that you know, not, not trying to, uh, you know, to take away your, your line of questioning. Um, but we have this 80% versus 20% divide. And that's created, uh, I think, a lot of issues with trying to get people to understand why things like social distancing are important. Uh, because of the fact that we, we have a fairly vocal, um, community of people that looks at it and says 80% of the people are fine. So why do we need to do things like school closures or, you know, why do we need to shut down uh, international, potentially domestic travel or, or quarantine people or self-isolate? Um, why do we need to do social distancing? Um, so there, there's the part of it where you say as, you know, from a moral side and maybe the way I look at it is saying, like, listen, we need to do what we can for the most vulnerable population, which is the 20 percent. But there's another factor. And the other factor in all of this is if this virus circulates and transmits widely and gets into that 20% of the population that's most vulnerable, what that does is it basically usurps the ability of the healthcare networks to actually do what they can for other things beyond COVID-19. Um, because what we've seen uh, very quickly, uh, you know, it, especially with a lot of the data coming out of a lot of the reports coming out of Italy, is that, uh, you know, intensive care units um, and, and healthcare wards get overrun with COVID-19 patients. So now what do you do about people that have other ailments that need to, uh, get looked after? And, and, and unfortunately, I mean, this is, this is some of the stuff that we faced in, in West Africa, 
where, you know, Ebola was obviously a massive issue. We had patients that, um, you know, or hospitals that were overrun with Ebola patients. Um, that was a massive public health problem. But there was also the public health problem underlying all of that of people that had any other number of infectious diseases or non-communicable and communicable diseases that could not get care because they couldn't get access to, to health care. So I look at all this and say, like, we, we need to, I think we need to do a better job in from a, a science and research standpoint and medical standpoint of our messaging for why this is important, um, but also need to make some very frank decisions very quickly as, as this virus is transmitting very quickly. So what about, or what do we know, I guess, at this point, because it, it hasn't been circulating for that long about no. reinfection and the potential for immunity once you've had the virus? So, you know, this is actually a perfect segue because there was a, a paper that, that got published. Well, it was a preprint that got published last night um, that it actually looked in rhesus macaque. So what, what we what we know about reinfection, again, you know, looking back at you know 11 or 12 weeks of circulation of this virus, is that there have been a couple of reports that uh, or, or at least a couple of anecdotal reports that have come out talking about um, whether or not there was the potential for reinfection in patients that what had been seen was that patients that had seemingly uh, recovered or had, um, you know, no, uh, no signs of uh, a virus left in their system suddenly tested positive and or started showing signs of, uh, of disease again. So the question obviously came up of saying, Oh, you know, does this mean that somebody can recover and then subsequently be reinfected by the virus, meaning that they haven't generated an immune response. And I think uh, there were a lot of us that were kind of, I think maybe questioning of, of those reports because it, it would be odd. It's not something that we, we tend to see with, uh, with, with the coronas and, and definitely even with, uh, you know, well, I should say influenza to a certain extent. I mean, we have an immune response, but we know if we get, uh, infected by different strains, it's different. Um, but it's not something we tend to think of with, you know, some of these, uh, some of these respiratory viruses. So what came out, uh, very recently was a study in, in rhesus macaques where they had infected their animals. Uh, the animals had shown uh, some signs and symptoms of disease. The animals recovered. Uh, they generated uh, at least a short-term immune response, and then the researchers basically re-challenged those animals. They basically tried to reinfect the animals uh, with virus again. And what they found was that there was no, uh, no suggestion of reinfection. So they did not see uh, you know, any... Um, uh, any recrudescence of a virus. They did not see uh, any increase in viral titers uh, or viral replication, and they didn't see any disease symptoms. Um, so what it suggests to us is that uh, at least in, you know, again, in, in rhesus macaques, and it's, it was a very limited study of animals, um, but when animals are infected, uh, they, they, tend to, they seem to generate a, at least a short-term immune response that upon reinfection, um, basically completely takes care of, uh, of, of that virus that, uh, that, that they're getting, uh, exposed to. So I think for us right now, it suggests at the very least that we don't think patients can be reinfected. I mean, there, there obviously still needs to be, um, better studies that are done. And, and I can, I can attest to the fact that there are absolutely animal experiments that are continuing going on in the background. Um, though I can't say specifically what, what they're looking at in terms of reinfection. But this is this is a a major question. Uh, we we want to know. We want to get as much solid data as we can to answer this. But at the at the very least, the data that that we've seen in the last couple of days suggests that we don't think reinfection 
uh, either occurs or plays uh, any role in transmission. What about vaccine development? I've heard a few whisperings here and there that, um, and there was, I think, a big news article today that Trump had tried to buy rights to a vaccine that was developed (laughs) in Germany. Where are we with developing a potential vaccine? And what are the kind of hypothetical timelines of something like that, assuming everything goes right? No, it's a great question, right? Because I think that um, obviously, as soon as this virus started to, uh, uh, you know, kind of spread in in China, there was some question about how quickly we could get a vaccine developed. Um, so, you know, I think what we're seeing right now is there are a number of of vaccine platforms uh, that are available. A lot of kind of mix and match vaccine platforms that uh, that have been generated, uh, pretty much, you know, starting with SARS onwards. But I, I think. Pushing more forward after uh, 2009, and, and definitely uh, certainly after Zika and Ebola, um, what people have done is has tr- have been trying to look at platforms for vaccine development that would essentially allow people to take new pathogens that that had emerged or new viruses that had emerged, uh, and essentially create a plug and play system where they could try and take components uh, out of that new virus and essentially immediately put it into you know, kind of a, a pre-existing, uh, you know, Lego structure and kind of, you know, add on that last one or two pieces um, and essentially have a vaccine candidate that they that they have a lot of faith in or, or at least have some reasoning for thinking would uh, would potentially be efficacious. So where we are right now is that there, there are quite a few platforms uh, that, that people have um, have been discussing and, and uh, have been moving ahead with. Uh, you know, I, I don't know necessarily the all the nuances of uh, of the different platforms that that are around, um, but the timeframes uh, are, are a little bit of question because we've heard obviously some talk about you know within weeks that you know we could have vaccine generated and within weeks we could be going into clinical trials. Um, I will still uh, acquiesce to what uh, Dr. Tony Fauci uh, has kind of continued on with uh, with his estimates, and I think most of us agree with is that we're probably at best. I still think probably 12 to 18 months away from having a vaccine candidate that uh, that, would, that would actually be deployed in the field. Um, and, and I know that that sounds somewhat, or I, maybe to some people, sounds like a long frame of, uh, of time. Um, when we look back classically at, at therapeutic development, uh, you know, whether it was vaccines or, uh, or, or other, uh, you know, small molecule therapeutics, what have you, we, we tended to look at these things as, you know, going from bench to bedside taking about 10 years of time and about a billion dollars for, for development. So that it was a massive bottleneck for years uh, with getting uh, new drugs and, and vaccines actually out and deployed to the field. Ebola kind of changed that. And I think the reasoning was that we, we realized with West Africa that we had to get things out to the field as quick as possible. And at the same time, we also realized that you know there was actually a bit of a potential to be able to run uh, clinical trials in, in parallel with, uh, with, with outbreaks or, or epidemics or even pandemics um, to actually try and, and get something uh, approved uh, much faster and actually out to the people that need it. So that actually is, has been a benefit for us. And, and obviously, uh, you know, they've been running trials uh, with the DRC Ebola uh, outbreak. And that has led to the licensure of, uh, uh, you know, of, uh, of at least the VSV backbone uh, Ebola vaccine. We think that probably, you know, the appetite obviously remains high for, for this. We know that COVID-19, uh, if it, you know, spreads widely and, and we aren't able to get it 
uh, you know, get it contained that, that it will potentially have, you know, uh, quite a few fatalities that are attached to it and obviously have massive, uh, public health and economic impacts. So I think the appetite is there to get things out as quickly as possible. It's just that again, we have to look at not only getting these things created, uh, you know, and generated in the lab, but then actually try and, and get some initial testing done on things just like safety. Um, in a lot of cases, we do that through animal models. Uh, well, the difficulty with, with animal models is that you have to have an animal that's susceptible to, to the virus and the pathogen you're looking at, and that all takes time. Um, you know, so there are a lot of things that, you know, a lot of potential hurdles that we have to get over. Uh, but, but I think, I think the time frame is, is fitting. So I have two major questions left. One that I am certain is unknowable, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Um, sure. and that is, I'm sure a lot of people, including myself, want to know, okay, when does life get back to normal? And that I think is probably <laughs> uh-huh. an unknowable answer. But uh, any thoughts from where you sit with your expertise looking at the field of play that we have right now on the 15th of March? Yeah, you know what? Okay, so I'll, I, it's interesting. I've, the questions that I've had about this actually primarily came out the, the last few days once uh, major sports leagues had actually canceled. I had a lot of, uh, a lot of athletic reporters or uh, sports reporters that, that came to me saying, you know, we, you know, we want to know the burning question of when will life get back to normal? Uh, you know, and it's, and it's, so it's been interesting to me. Um, I, I think the question is, is valid. And, and I don't think we can put a specific time frame on it, which is, which is unfortunate. You know, I can't say to people, listen in, you know, we're hoping in three weeks that all this is taken care of. Um, our best, my best suggestion and comment on this is that the faster that we can get the virus uh, contained or at least uh, transmission mitigated or, or curbed, the faster we can get back to normal life. And that I know is a very open-ended comment, but we don't really know. And I think, you know, we, we can look at obviously some of the things that, that have happened with, say, Singapore and South Korea, um, they, and even China to a certain extent. They've been able to curb transmission very quickly. Um, but there are a number of variables for why they did that. In, in some cases, those were massive quarantines. Uh, they very much restricted, uh, you know, uh, public movement and, and increased social distancing. But they also did an amazing amount of testing. I mean, South Korea has just done an unbelievable amount of, of testing on, on their public. Um, for us, you know, it, it would require uh, us to basically, I think, completely go into things like massive quarantines um, and, 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 you know, exponentially increase our testing uh, to be able to get this thing curbed really, really quickly. So, you know, I look at this from the perspective of not a few weeks. Um, I look at this as far as a few months, because not only do we have to try and you know, essentially what they call the, the flat the curb part of trying to, you know, increase the amount of time, uh, over which the, the disease is spreading. So basically increase, uh, or decrease the, the total number of transmission events that are occurring, uh, you know, in a short period of time. But we not only have to get that to plateau, we have to get that to start to decrease. And that's, and what, well, and not only do we have to get it de- to decrease, we have to basically get that decrease to continue before we can kind of go back to normal. Um, because the thing that we don't want to see is if we essentially remove all of the, the different, um, you know, containment procedures and mitigation procedures that, that have been instituted, 
if we do those things too quickly, even if the virus is starting to, to decrease in transmission, what we can see is that very quickly, that transmission events suddenly increase again, and we're back to, you know, essentially square one with, with trying to curb things. So, uh, you know, I, I sympathize with people uh, across the board, regardless of what their, their backgrounds, uh, are as, as well as what their, uh, home or familial situations are. Um, we're, we're all in this together. We're all looking at this as far as, you know, short-term sacrifices. Life is not going to be normal. Uh, and, and things are going to change very dynamically and very quickly. Um, and I think the only, you know, kind of uh, maybe solace I can give to people is if we can get through those things together, um, we are hopeful that we can get things back on track to, to normalcy at a much faster rate. And my second question is, as many of us uh, work from home, I work from home normally, but uh, it's yes. a different experience having my partner work from home. Um, but as we all start to self-isolate and draw in uh, to our own homes and withdraw a little bit from the world in order to protect the most vulnerable and and also to some extent protect ourselves. Sure. Um, I know that I can sense it in myself and I've certainly heard other people I talk to saying they can sense it in themselves that urge to just keep scrolling through the news and try yep. and find more information that both builds anxiety in a desire to try and self-soothe by trying to understand this thing better. Um, so I guess my question is, who should people look to for trusted news, especially in this day and age of social media, where anybody can write anything on the internet, and it's very easy to spread misinformation that is not helpful. So from so, your perspective, with your expertise, who should people look to for news? That's, that's a fantastic question. Because to be fair, listen, I'm, I'm at the same, the exact same boat, because I, I now spend, you know, probably a very large part of my day scrolling through uh, information, trying to figure out what is real, what is not, and trying to understand what the situation is. And, and, and we've had to have that talk at home of saying like, okay, how often do you need to be doing this before? You, you know, you kind of, it just becomes all enthralling. And, and this is my career and my life, so this is, you know, part of what I do. But for, for most people, uh, for most people, what I would recommend is, first of all, don't do this all day long. Um, because what you're going to see is that things uh, and, and situations are going to change very dynamically. And that can occur on basically uh, an hour-to-hour basis as well as potentially uh, on a daily basis. So what, what we've been trying to recommend to people is to maybe not you know, spend you know, the better part of the day looking for information, but maybe try and do it once a day where you actually get updates. And maybe do that later in the day once you actually have you know, a lot of, um, you know, different public health agencies, uh, whether it's here in, in Canada at the provincial level or, or at the federal level, um, where they're actually submitting their report. So that way you're getting kind of one sense of what the trend is over 24 hours. But I would also say to people, you know, watch, watch the trends, not over a one day period, but watch the trends over a longer period because things are so dynamic right now. We we can't predict. I think right now, in in a short period of time, what what is going to happen. And you know, Italy has been a good example where you know I saw some debate a couple of days ago about the fact of whether or not they were starting to see decreased transmission. And then uh, you know, was it overnight they had you know it was like three thousand new cases that were announced. So you know, I think we have to kind of get ourselves a little bit back from the you know the highs and lows of 
of, of very quick turnaround times on uh, on reporting uh, to you know to to try and, and just help kind of self soothe and 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 get a bit of a you know a mental health break as well for sources um, you know listen there there are a lot of us that are on social media that that I think are fantastic I'm I'm trying to do my due diligence and I know tons of other people are um, I, I don't necessarily want to suggest individuals because I, I think that. You know, we obviously we're not infallible. We're going to sometimes get things wrong, or we're going to give uh, you know the, maybe the, the the wrong critiques uh, at points, or uh, or um, you know assessments maybe that that were not completely uh, valid at the time. Um, what I would actually recommend more is that you know people go back to places like the World Health Organization. The WHO provides daily situation reports that give you information that has been annotated from around the globe. Um, it is about as accurate of information as you're going to find. Uh, the, the US CDC and Health Canada and obviously Public Health England um, are also doing, uh, I think, their best that they can for, for providing reports as quickly as possible. Um, though obviously uh, all the individual uh, health networks are, are extremely busy, so I would still go back to, uh, to WHO. Um, but I would also recommend uh, you know, for people that, uh, you know, uh, may be listening, uh, abroad. I mean, I, I do a lot of work in Africa. I also go to the Africa CDC website. Uh, they've been providing just unbelievable, um, updates for, uh, for, for what the situation is within that continent. Uh, you know, so I, I think really look for, for larger, um, public health organizations that, that you, you have some vested faith in and, and that are actually looking out for, for public health interests. Um, I think the, the media provides a, a lot of updates, but again, um, I, I don't think that they're necessarily always, um, you know, the, the most critically sourced information that can be, and obviously, uh, you know, they, they can be wrong from, from time to time as well. So, you know, please go, go back to, to, to WHO, um, CDC, PHE, and, and Health Canada to, to get information. Jason, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate you taking the time out, especially uh, in the midst of where we're at with your expertise. I am sure it is much in demand. Great. I appreciate it so much, Rochelle. Thank you for, uh, for having me on today. And if you want to learn more about Jason Kindrachuk, his work, uh, or his research, we will have links for you to click in the show notes for this episode, which, as usual, you'll find on our website, scienceforthepeople.ca. Up next is a conversation I recorded a couple of weeks ago on the 3rd of March with Kelly Hills, a founding bioethicist of the consulting firm Rogue Bioethics, where she consults on ethical issues concerning novel technologies such as synthetic biology and genome editing. Her current research projects include ethical responses to emerging infectious diseases, international bioethics, biosecurity, and science communication norms. She and I discussed the ideas, complications, and ethics of quarantine, the complications of following public health advice when you don't have paid sick leave, how best to break through the headlines, and the practicalities and impracticalities of preparing for self-isolation and any number of other emergencies. Kelly, welcome to Science for the People. Thank you so much for having me today. So with the coronavirus outbreak, one of the things that is being talked about a lot, it's in the news uh, and news coming from all kinds of different countries as the outbreak progresses, is the idea and practice of quarantine. Now, before we get into the specifics of what's happening, 
with quarantine practices right now with coronavirus, I do want to step back for a second and actually define the word quarantine because sometimes in science or public health or medicine, words that we as lay people think we know don't actually mean what we think they mean. And I think that's actually a really great point to start at, Rochelle, because you're right. When we say quarantine, people often mean very different things. Um, so the first thing to clarify is that there's a big difference between isolation and quarantine. You isolate somebody who already has a disease, who is already sick. And it's generally pretty easy to do because when you're not feeling well, the last thing you generally want to do is go anywhere or do anything. You want medical attention and you generally want to be in bed while you're getting it, whether or not that's in a hospital or at home. Most people prefer at home, but you know. Um, quarantine, on the other hand, is typically seen as when we take somebody who has been exposed to a disease, but is not yet positive for having the disease and may never become positive for having the disease. And we tell them to stay in a particular place for a particular period of time. Historically, that's actually 40 days. That's a biblical number. And it actually comes from an old belief in medicine um, called the miasma theory of medicine, which said that disease was caused by all of the smells around us. And it was believed that it took 40 days to go through all of these intense processes to burn out the smells of disease around you. These days, generally less period of time than that. <laughs> um, Typically, you'll see quarantine talked about for 10 to 14 days. And in that time, somebody is either left at home, which is called self-quarantining, or they can be put on a military base or in a converted resort facility or something like that. Um, and these are generally considered coercive measures. They're not voluntary. So the term quarantine, really, if we're thinking about it, has some idea of coercion or force may be a strong word, but maybe kind of the right word? Um, you know, you would hope that somebody would hear, all right, you've been exposed to measles. Please, please, please stay inside. Don't go around other people. Measles is highly contagious. It can be really nasty if you're not vaccinated. And, you know, Skipping the whole anti-vax dilemma, we still have people who are immunosuppressed and can't receive vaccinations. Don't, don't, don't hurt them. And you would hope that anybody would say, you know what? That makes sense. I'm going to stay home. But you really have to have some compelling reasons for quarantine to be a voluntary situation. And a lot of times, especially in America, the reasons that you might be given for quarantine are not persuasive for um, public health science reasons or, or even things as simple as, hey, I have to go to work and earn money. <sighs> It's a little unusual when we're talking about it currently because we actually haven't had a federal quarantine since, I believe, the 50s. We have had quarantines since then. They have been state-based. And with few exceptions, notably measles, they haven't necessarily been diseases where the scientific consensus says that somebody should be quarantined. One of the big things we want to talk about when determining whether or not we should quarantine people is, is this a disease that can be spread before they have symptoms? 
So some people might remember that there was a big debate over whether or not we should quarantine people coming back to America who had been working in regions affected by Ebola in the 2013-2016 outbreak. And we know that Ebola is not contagious until you have symptoms. So there's no reason to lock somebody in a room. We can literally say, hey, can you self-monitor? Take your temperature, keep track of your symptoms, and we'll have someone call you twice a day to see how you're doing. The idea of quarantine being a coercive measure in some cases, when we're talking about coercion, usually there is some thumb that someone can push down on you or some Mm -hmm. kind of punishment or some mechanism behind the coercion. So what does that look like in a quarantine practice when it happens? Well, it really depends on what country you're talking about, Rochelle. The United States has some penalties for violating quarantine. They can be financial. Um, I believe I saw $100,000 if you violate quarantine and somebody gets sick from it. And it can be upwards of $250,000 if that person is, quote, grievously harmed. And I believe that includes death, There are public health concerns where you might find somebody who has repeatedly violated a quarantine actually being thrown in jail because it's believed that that's better for the community. So yeah, there's definitely some thumb there, but it might not be so severe as in Singapore, for example, where somebody who violated quarantine a few weeks ago had their residency stripped. Oof. Yes. So, so yeah. Um, and there have been some disturbing reports out of China. Now, China itself is a bit of an interesting situation because they've enacted not just quarantine, but a third measure that we don't hear about too often anymore. And that's called cordon sanitaire, or literally a cordon boundary. And we use that when we stop movement in or out of a city. And a lot of people call that quarantine, but since you're not actually stopping the movement of the people inside the city, the people who are inside that boundary can still go to the grocery store, they can still go to the pharmacy, in some cases they can even still go to work. We call that technically a cordon sanitaire. And that actually comes, again, from the medieval concept of having walled cities where we can literally shut the gates and keep people out or in. And so China has had some punishments if you break the cordon sanitaire. China has had different sets of punishment if you have broken a quarantine, that is when an individual has actually been specified to not leave a particular place. And then China has also had what's called social distancing measures, where they do things like cancel Lunar New Year celebrations or other large gatherings. And when people try to violate that, there can be a different level of punishment again. And they're not obvious. Unfortunately, they're not consistent across provinces, so I can't give you specific examples of each one. But I can say that if someone goes and reads the news coverage, they can find examples of violations and punishments happening. And some of them possibly very severe because we are again talking about an authoritarian government like Singapore, as opposed to a government like America. 
So what are the situations in which we would start to seriously consider a quarantine in order to help deal with an infectious disease? Well, there's what we would consider ethically or what people are going to consider for other reasons. And that's one of the things I really try and emphasize when I talk to people about this, Rochelle, is that often the public health measures that we see being taken are not actually being taken for public health reasons. They're being taken for political reasons. And we can look back to the Ebola crisis and what was going on in America when we started talking about quarantining uh, health workers who were coming back from West Africa. It was an election year. So people were actually trying to go for those election points. And the minute the election passed, almost all talk of quarantine stopped, even though the epidemic continued. So a lot of this is wanting to be seen like you're doing something helpful, whether or not it's actually helpful in the strictest sense of the definition. Absolutely. Travel bans and quarantines are what we would call security theater. There is very limited evidence that suggests either help in the long run. Travel bans might delay the spread of a disease for 10 to 14 days, but as anybody who's following the current coronavirus outbreak knows – We have very good evidence now that suggests that the coronavirus has been circulating quietly in Washington state for six to seven weeks, possibly longer, depending on when this airs. Um, And uh, so obviously that happened before travel bans were even put up. Travel bans don't work when we're talking about 48 hours to get anywhere in the world. Likewise, quarantine is generally a security theater measure that has taken after the horse has left the barn. You're closing the barn doors and you're putting up bars and you're trying to do all of these things where the horse is three meadows over and looking at you like, and you're doing this, why? <laughs> and, and, and most of the time, that's what we see quarantine as um, contemporarily. That does not mean, however, that there would never be a situation in which you should use quarantine. We actually have some pretty solid ethical principles for this. Um, and I know that, that that probably confuses people because a lot of people think ethics is just like this thing you feel and don't realize that, no, we're actually a scientific discipline too, and we do research, and <laughs> we have arguments in the peer-reviewed literature. We have peer-reviewed literature. And some of what we know is that in order to justify infringing upon people's liberty, equality, justice, and other kinds of civil rights, you want to look for a couple of things. First, you need this to be a disease that absolutely spreads before somebody shows any symptoms. Measles is a good example. You need it to have a relatively high ability to spread between people. It's contagion. Uh, People have probably heard this referred to lately as the R-naught or the R-itty-bitty zero. And you also, in addition to how, how contagious it is, it also needs to be virulent. It needs to actually be killing people. So you need to have this combination for a disease. But on top of that, we also want to look at things like, is this effective? You know, you have to show that if you're going to infringe upon somebody's civil rights, 
it's effective to do so. We know right now, for example, I should say, taking the Diamond Princess, the ship that was quarantined in the Japanese harbor, we know that quarantining those people on that ship was not effective. In fact, it probably created a scenario that spread disease. So that right there, ineffective, doesn't justify quarantine. The other thing you want is you want it to be proportional. So do the public health benefits outweigh the risks? And is is it done so in a way that, hmm, how to say this, is not an overreaction, I guess. Is, is it, are you saying, look, there is no other response because there's no way to know if somebody is sick and they're going to spread this and it's going to kill so many people? Or are you kind of overreacting because people don't know what's going on? They don't realize that coronaviruses are common in the environment and things like that. Necessity. Is there no other option to take? Is it not possible to do social distancing? Is it not possible to ask somebody to self-report on symptoms? Is this absolutely the measure that has to be taken and there is no other less restricting option available? Go ahead. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Oh, I was like, no, no, go ahead. I mean, there's two other ones and they're a little more flim. They're a little less, um, I wouldn't say they're flimsy, but they're a little less pressing. One of them is just that you actually have to publicly justify this. Mm-hmm. Like you actually have to be able to go on TV and be like, this is what we're doing and this is why we're doing it. And this is the science that says we should do this. And you have to be able to convince people because if you can't, no real amount of coercion is going to keep them in one place unless you've literally got armed guards. And the last thing is actually just reinforcing what I said. It has to be the least infringing. So it means it has to be the one that is least likely to step upon civil rights. So could you potentially give us an example of what, as a bioethicist, you would see in history as an ethical quarantine, if you can think of one? Um... I actually generally agree with quarantining people who have been exposed to measles. And that actually happens a couple times a year in America. And it's not uncommon to happen in other countries as well. You'll get a measles outbreak often in Disneyland or somewhere in LA County. And somebody who hasn't been vaccinated uh, finds out that they were exposed and the health department says, okay, well, you're under a self-quarantine in your apartment for the next, uh, I think, 16 days. Uh, don't have the quarantine numbers for measles in front of me. Uh, and people fight it. People are like, oh, I shouldn't be quarantined. And you're like, well, no, actually, you could spread this disease for quite a long time without knowing you're sick. And it has a pretty severe impact for people who don't have a choice about vaccination. And the are not or the contagion factor is huge. You know, people talk about, oh, this new coronavirus, it's got just this amazingly high are not of mm, 2.5. And you kind of look at it and you're like, look, it's above one, which means that it is an infection risk, yes. But pink eye has an R not of four. You don't find people panicking about pink eye infections. 
And measles has an R0 of 12 to 18. I mean, that's huge. And it has a proportional virulency that is a concern. So absolutely, if you're exposed to measles and you haven't been vaccinated, quarantine is your friend, whether you like it or not. Um, we have seen quarantine for multi-drug resistant and extent, um, extreme drug resistant tuberculosis. There's a lot of debate about whether or not that is necessary. But there are some people in some communities who simply are not treatment responsive. And then the question is, what do you do? And at least for a little while, the solution was you put people in jail indefinitely, which strikes me as incredibly problematic. Um, historically, I'm having a bit of a hard time finding a quarantine that we were, we would all look at and go like, this is a fantastic example. Um, mostly because quarantine, at least in modern times, hasn't been a fantastic example. Uh, so when I write about it, I often use thought experiments, um, such as for Ebola, if you had a bunch of pre-linguistic babies who had all been separated from their caretakers and all possibly exposed to Ebola in one place, um, it would be absolutely ethical to quarantine those babies until you knew that they did not have Ebola. So... Quarantine, I, I, my guess is that uh, based on that, those examples you were able to pull in the hypothetical is that <laughs> probably your bioethicist view on the way quarantine has been used so far. Uh, it is on moment of recording 3rd of March, 2020. Uh, the way it's been used in the coronavirus outbreak, probably not a fan. No, no, that's a fair statement. Uh, yeah, I've uh, written a couple of pieces on this already. And yeah, I don't think it's justified. I just don't think we have the data that shows that the case fatality rate is high enough, or that it spreads to enough people to justify that kind of violation, especially since we know that very few cases are spreading it asymptomatically. Uh, this was actually um, a press conference from the World Health Organization this morning, where they did confirm that there is a minor chance of asymptomatic transmission. It's about 1%, though. And the people that they found who were doing asymptomatic transmission, almost all of them, within two days of being discovered, developed symptoms. So they were just caught right at that liminal period where you switch over from you're not sick to when you're sick. And that's, you know, unfortunately one of those spaces that does exist in infection you know you have to you have to you have to like uh and how do you say this you have to transit from being not infected to being infected and that's not the kind of process where you just open and close a door you know it it's not one minute you're not infected and the next minute you are infected viruses do take time to replicate in your system. Yeah, it's not exactly a binary state of being. <laughs> exactly. It's not yes, no. So yeah. so the asymptomatic cases, yeah, chances are pretty good. We just caught them right on that cusp. And even then at 1%, they're not spreading it. There's just, they're, they're not the majority spread of this virus. What is the majority spread, it sounds like, is the fact that 
it's pretty mild for most people who get this. Something like 82% of people have the sniffles, they have a cough, they have a fever, they might have aches and pains. Kind of sounds like almost any other common cold or influenza-like illness that you can get in the winter. And that's part of what makes it so difficult, because how do you know on the surface if somebody is sick or not? What do they have? So, yeah, that makes quarantine in and of itself very difficult, because how do you know who to quarantine, especially once we get into situations we're talking about now in the United States, which is community-inquired infections, which means that the outbreaks can't be tied back to people who have been in South Korea or Japan or China or other places that have high numbers of cases. I do want to talk specifically as well about the ideas of um quarantine as we consider them a bit more loosely, but also the ideas of self-isolation. Um, and in particular in the U.S., because the U.S. faces some challenges here that I think are different than a lot of other places, certainly than the U.K. and Canada, both countries that I've lived in, mm-hmm. um, in part because there is no socialized medical care in the United States. And there's also yep. some really tight rules, uh, well, tight rules as in um, – not a lot of luxury towards things like paid sick leave or even vacation leave. Here in the UK, I have um, paid sick leave. I have an mm. option to work from home and the job I have, as do many other people. I also yep. have a minimum of four weeks vacation time, paid vacation time that I can leverage. Uh, I know for sure in the US, that is not the case. That is absolutely true. I will say I lived in the United Kingdom this past Michael Mass term um, while my husband was doing uh, research at Cambridge. Um, and it blew my mind. It was the first time I had lived overseas for more than, you know, an extended vacation. And the UK is so different from the United States. Just the idea that you can wait at home for a package to be delivered. And that's normal. Like, I come, I came back to America and I told people this. I was like, did you know that, like, if you're expecting a package People are just kind of cool with it. Like, you can just wait at home until the package comes. There's no leaving it on the doorstep for somebody to take off with. If you're not home, it goes to a mail center. But it's just kind of accepted that this is a part of life. It's accepted that at lunch, you might have to go run some errands. Like, things are only open nine to five. But that's not a problem because the business that you work for just accepts that you got to go get your dry cleaning one day or you might have to swing by the store. It, it blew my mind. It's just such a different setup. And some of it is absolutely rooted in that concept of a socialized healthcare system and, and the things that it entails. We don't have that in America. And so it's going to be very difficult to have people voluntarily quarantine themselves because people aren't going to have the time off. Uh, people are going to be faced with go to work or lose your job. And when you put people under those kinds of pressures, they don't make choices that are good for public health. They don't make choices that are good for their own health. Think about the number of Americans who go to work every year sick. Like It would be glorious if every time anyone in America had a cold, they could just, as as my Australian husband would tell you, pull a sickie. Just take a sick day. (laughs) And that just doesn't happen. And it, it makes containing 
any kind of disease outbreak difficult, even if we're talking about influenza, which has been horrible this year. I mean, influenza has just torn through America. We have a high death rate. We've got a high infection rate. We've had schools that have had to shut down because it's just been everywhere. And that's been the effort to stop the influenza spread, which is a social distancing measure. And they work. So, will we see some of those things happen? I absolutely think that we are going to see schools shutting down to attempt to stop the spread. Whether or not that's effective, mm, children don't seem to be carrying the coronavirus, so... mm. But it also means that parents are going to have to stay home because who's going to watch the kids? Um, are parents going to be able to work from home? Mm-hmm. You know, you kind of hope that companies are going to be like, this is a great opportunity to experiment. Let's see how much of our workforce we can allow to work from home. We'll save overhead. We don't have to have a building anymore. I don't have faith that that's going to be easy, though. Um, so, yeah. And there's, there's I was also, say, oh, go ahead. <laughs> no, I was just going to say, and you're absolutely right. You know, without universal health care, people are, do have concerns about going to the doctor. There's been a lot of misinformation and confusion going around who's going to pay for the health, who's going to pay for the test if you have to have the coronavirus test, um, who's going to pay for your care if you get hospitalized, who's going to pay for your care if you get quarantined. And these are there are not clear answers to this uh, for a variety of reasons, including the fact that a particular uh, act that has to be invoked in order to get federal money moving to states has not been invoked yet. So this isn't on the topic of quarantine, but I think the U.S. is particularly susceptible to this, and we've seen it in a few places. Um, what's going on with coronavirus is, a, I think, a really good example that's right in front of us right now of the idea of kind of a, a panic or a high level of anxiety mm. around an infectious disease that yes. seems... And again, I am no medical expert, and this could be complete bull that I'm about to say, but that feels out of proportion with what is actually happening. Um, yes. But at the same time, does also feel proportionate in some ways mm-hmm. that we just talked about, which is yeah. if you do need to self-isolate because you are sick, then all of a sudden you have you're sort of faced with a decision of do I continue to spread this disease at my job or do I get fired or right. do I just take no pay for two weeks, which maybe you can't afford to do without potentially mm-hmm. putting at risk your uh, rent payments or exactly. other important payments. So yep. it's one of these weird situations where I feel both the worry, anxiety and panic in the way mm. we see it portrayed in the media and the way we see it portrayed in people posting to Twitter empty shelves in <laughs> grocery stores and the kind of sort of panic buying of supplies. I feel that feels so overblown. And we're focusing on that so much, but not talking about some of the other elements, which to me feel legitimately like we should be talking about and that we should be concerned about and that we should be thinking about how we're going to manage. It's it's weird to feel both that it's overblown and underblown, I guess, is what I'm saying. (laughs) Oh, but I actually, I completely agree with you though. I think that's a, a, a fantastic way of describing it. Um, I have a friend who is actually taken to calling it the infodemic of the epidemic. And I think that's clever. Um, I think we're seeing a couple of things going on. One, 
I really want to talk to the person who bought like two carts full of nothing but milk this weekend at a Costco because why milk spoils some things that people are doing don't make sense. And to me, it underscores like the panic of it because you're panicking, you're not thinking. So you just buy all of this milk and then you get home and you're like, Oh, um, I'll make cheese. You know, (laughs) I just, you know, there was a a reporter saw somebody coming out of Costco with nothing but multiple jars of coconut oil and large boxes of condoms. And again, people have their priorities for when like things they're afraid they're going to run out of. But I have questions, (laughs) especially (laughs) since coconut oil and condoms is a bad idea if they're latex anyhow. Um, (laughs) And so... There's just these really beautiful examples of people buying, it seems like, whatever they can put their hands on and not really thinking things through. On the flip side, we have been under instructions to prepare. That's what the CDC told Americans last week. They said, you need to prepare for this to get bad. But no one actually took the time to tell anyone what prepare means. So I don't blame people for being afraid and and saying, well, shit, the CDC said we have to prepare. Prepare. And then you just kind of get into this panic mode. And it's something my husband and I have been dealing with because we know what's going on. We're very – we're both bioethicists, so – we're both working on coronavirus in our respective areas of bioethics. He's doing stuff more on the ground locally. I'm tackling more of the internet thing. But we're aware of the risks. We're aware of what's going on. And we still find ourselves going, you know, if everybody else is out there buying toilet paper in a panic, what do we do in a week when we need toilet paper and it's gone? Like, do we go buy it now and contribute to what is perceived as panic? Like you don't want to not have things that you need, but on the other hand, you don't want to contribute to something that you don't think is a panic worth reinforcing. And I think a lot of this comes down to the fact that at least in America, we have not been very good at public health preparedness in general. And that, that, that is to say, Almost every American lives in an area that is susceptible to some kind of disaster, whether you're in a tornado alley or like me, you grew up with earthquakes or you, like me, currently live in threat of hurricane season or blizzards that might dump 140 inches of snow on you and, you know, you can go skiing out your second story windows. Everybody has something Unfortunately, this morning, we woke up to the news of really devastating tornadoes in Nashville. Everywhere, we've got hurricanes, tornadoes, earthquakes, volcanoes. America, if you think about it, full of natural disasters just waiting to happen. We should all have preparedness kits. They should all contain basics like food for at least a couple of days If you're talking like ideal scenario, we should all have food and water for every member of our household, including our pets, for two weeks. 
We should have the ability to eat over a camp stove in case we lose power. We should have hand crank radios. Uh, we should have hand crank chargers for our phones, blankets, sleeping bags, extra shoes, two weeks to a month of extra medication, which, of course, again, going back to the problems in America with insurance, is almost impossible for some people to do. There are all of these ideals of public health preparedness that if you're in biosecurity or emergency disaster prep or a lot of fields, you know about, but the general public Probably not so much. So you hear prepare and you hear pandemic and you kind of just go out shopping willy nilly. The reality is most of ideally we should all be able to sit through two weeks of staying at home if we absolutely had to, because you don't know if you're going to get hit by a hurricane and have no choice. I guess one of the biggest challenges with that kind of preparedness is, I guess there's a couple of challenges. One would be knowing what that even means and really taking the time to think through it in a place where you're not currently feeling anxious or threatened about the state of the world you're in so that you can actually look at what that kit really should contain and kind of yes. go about stocking it in a deliberate and sort of measured way. But yes. Also, the reality that there's a huge number of people who just can't afford to keep themselves going and stocked up on a regular week to week basis that yep. having the extra space, um, both like actual physical space, mm -hmm. but also financial space to create those kinds of preparedness kits or readiness is just out of the question for people who are having difficulty keeping their families fed from week to week. Absolutely. When I was in school, my apartment wasn't large enough for me to have more than the food I had needed on hand for myself and my cats and my frog. Um, <laughs> the frog wasn't a problem. Uh, <laughs> but I, you know, I had a studio apartment. Where was I supposed to stash two weeks worth of water for each of us? That was three gallons a day. That's a lot of gallons of water. <laughs> Yeah. Um, where where was I supposed to put it? I mean, I literally was in school for this topic and would go home and be like, I'm a failure. I can't even follow the basics of what I should be doing. How in the world can I recommend other people do this? Like, isn't that hypocritical of me? And And it's still a very difficult thing to come to terms with. It was only when we recently moved up to Massachusetts, when my husband took a tenure track position, that we were really in the position to have more than a couple of days of very, <clears throat> excuse me, of very basic supplies on hand. And we still don't have two weeks. We're working on it. But you know, here we are saying, yeah, it would be great if you had a week or two. I think we have five days. Um, maybe. <laughs> I even think about having lived in Canada in very small apartments, but also here in the UK where the sizes mm -hmm. of kitchen, homes, and food oh, storage yeah. is just smaller. Like we don't have yeah. the space to maybe in the house we're in now, but certainly not every house we've lived in here in the UK. And we've lived in, in kind of standard houses. They're not mm -hmm. smaller than most people's houses. They're not bigger than most people's houses. I'm not sure where we'd store that kind of excess food. Yeah, and, and also, what would that excess food be? Something that is very different in a lot of countries uh, to America. America does have, let's say, a good reliance on shelf-stable 
food. But something I noticed living in the UK was I was at the grocery store every other day. Partly that was because I had the world's smallest fridge, it felt like. <laughs> but also it was just because that's just what everyone did. You didn't have this huge pantry of food to shop from. And it was a very different experience. Whereas, you know, in America, you a lot of people are accustomed to Costco, bulk shopping. You have a huge pantry, you know, or at least you ideally do. And yeah, that, that just doesn't exist in a lot of places. And it, it's an ideal in America for a reason. It doesn't exist for a lot of people either. Now, we have advice for what to do if you're in that situation, whether it's not a lot of space, or it's not a lot of money. But none of that really helps when it's right now that people are panicking. Because that advice very much says, build slowly. You know, if you can buy an extra bag of beans at the store and set it aside. And build these things slowly. If you see Clorox wipes on sale, buy two for one. You can use one that you would use around the house normally, and you would put the other one aside into your go kit or your ready kit or your disaster bag, whatever you want to call it. And so this is generally the advice that's given for how to build these kinds of situ- these kinds of preparedness kits together. You don't have to do it all at once. You don't have to go to REI or White Mountain or, you know, insert name of favorite outdoor company here and buy all of the ultra fancy high tech trail food that you just rip it open and it cooks itself with water. You don't have to go out and spend the money on that tomorrow. You could make do with a supply of beans and tuna. It's not going to be the best food in the world, but if it's a disaster, it's food, but it takes time. And you still do have to get creative with storage. Uh, eventually, I was doing things like building shelves very close to the top of my ceiling where I could just slide in a four-pack stack of tuna. I was also a good size for cat food. And <laughs> just, you know, just had that going around the top of one part of my apartment. And that was like my little disaster area. And you have to get creative. Maybe it's underneath a bed. Um, it's not easy. And like you said, if you're living paycheck to paycheck, it can be hard to even justify doing that extra bag of beans. And unfortunately, I feel like what happens then is that you get into these panics where people feel like, oh my gosh, I'm not at all prepared. I have to buy probably more than I can really do right now. But if I don't, maybe I'm going to end up sick or dead. And so you kind of get into a second problem where people are overspending. And it creates just a really, I think, bad feedback loop. It's very depressing. So from the standpoint of right now where we are on the 3rd of March 2020, coronavirus uh, is definitely in the news a lot. Yes. Um, from your point of view as a bioethicist looking at the state of play now, mm-hmm. uh, and also knowing that this episode may not come out for a few weeks, right. do you have something that you think is the most important takeaway? If a listener only takes one thing away from our conversation, what would you like them to take away? Oh, 
Make sure that you are getting your information about the coronavirus from a trusted source. And that's actually a lot more difficult than it might sound like on the surface. Because as several outlets reported last week, there is some debate over whether or not the federal government is involving themselves, at least in America, to a degree that might be constraining, shall we say, the response that health department officials are able to give. Uh, the other side of the equation, if you turn on CNN, you might see somebody who's called an epidemiologist. But do you know that they're an epidemiologist in emerging infectious diseases? You might not. And there are lots of different areas people can be epidemiologists in. For example, you can be an epidemiologist in the social determinants of health. You can be an epidemiologist in nutrition. There are a lot of different avenues to do epidemiology, and not all of them are relevant to this outbreak. So really make sure that anybody that you're getting your information from has the bona fides to be talking about it. If you're on Twitter, look at who's retweeting them versus who's saying, oh, mm, I don't know if you should listen to that person. They're not qualified. Make sure that if somebody has a Chiron on TV that tells you about why they're being interviewed, that it's relevant and that they're being specific, not that somebody is an epidemiologist, but that somebody is a public health epidemiologist epidemiologist from a respected university where they actually teach, not just have an affiliation. Or that, that somebody is an emergency room doctor at an emergency room in your area. These are things you can do to make sure that the person that you're taking advice from is actually giving you advice that is grounded in science. This is especially true with social media right now, because we have this really weird environment where you can get a lot of information real fast. And that's great. It has been fantastic for some levels of this outbreak. We've had the sequencing data for the coronavirus since within about the second week. And it's given researchers a chance to study it, figure out information, look into therapeutics, start vaccine research. It's been amazing. It's literally mind-blowing, the, the differences even between the 2014 MERS outbreak and now in ability to share. But on the downside, it also means that it's very easy for people with bad ideas to get into the public as well, or for the public to go reading a preprint server and not necessarily understanding that just because it's on a preprint server doesn't actually mean it's a good research. A lot of times things go up on preprint and then disappear. They don't make it past editorial review at a peer-reviewed journal. They don't make it past peer review. They might even get taken down from that preprint server. And a lot, a lot of the conspiracy theories and just flat-out information around the coronavirus have actually come from those preprint servers. And people taking, hey, look what I found. Isn't this weird? Let me have some feedback from a scientist as, oh my God, look at what I found. This is just devastating and running with it. And twofold problem there. One, that just feeds panic. And that, that I think is 
the basis of a lot of this infodemic, but it also takes time and energy away from researchers who have other things they should be doing other than saying, no, really, it's not a bioweapon. It is not designed. It was not engineered or whatever the latest conspiracy theory is about it. You know, we want our virologists to be working on the, in the lab not on the computer <laughs> saying no honest no one made this it's way too ugly you know <laughs> and if you do that if you really verify your sources and you know where your information is coming from hopefully you'll find people who are helping explain what's going on in a calm measured manner they can explain the science they can answer questions about the peer reviewed literature and help you feel better because i firmly believe that the more information you have the less scared you'll be because you'll know what you're dealing with kelly thank you so much for your time today it's uh we rarely get to do a show that has such immediate relevance we tend to play the long game here at science for the people uh, but it seemed like a conversation we should have especially in a world where there's a lot of misinformation going around about coronavirus it's early <laughs> days still it will be very yes. interesting to see what happens it will be very interesting to see what happens. And hopefully there's not too much egg on my face in three weeks time. But thank you very much for having me. I really enjoy science for the people. And I think that this is a great place to be having this kind of conversation with uh, trusted sources that, that people know that they can listen to and, and at least have a good place of where to start for finding out more information. And if you want to learn more about Kelly Hills, rogue bioethics, or any other bioethic topics, we have some links to get you started that you can click in the show notes for this episode, which you can find on our website, scienceforthepeople.ca. Thanks, Kelly. And thanks, Jason, for your time and expertise. To everyone listening, take care of each other as best you can. Make sure others have what they need before you take extra. Think about how we can protect and support the most at risk among us. That's all from us here this week at Science for the People. And don't worry, we'll be here next week. Science for the People is listener supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount. Your support keeps us afloat and able to keep making great new episodes. And we thank you for it. The show is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. We get help with special projects from K.O. Myers. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. The show is hosted by Bethany Brookshire, Anika Hazra, Marion Kilgour, and me, Rochelle Saunders. 